you will, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. We believe as we gather that God's words ought to be the words that we hear, and so that's why we practice what's often called expository preaching. If that's a new phrase to you, essentially what it means is that the point of the Bible is the point of the message, that I or anyone else who stands behind a pulpit to preach is not free to just go out and get a good idea and then try to throw verses at it and see if they stick. That actually we begin with the Bible and out of the Bible emerges... Uh, the message that we have. And here at Gray Road, typically what we do is work through large sections of a book of the Bible or a whole book of the Bible doing this. So next month, we will begin a study in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Following that, we will look at the book of Daniel. And then if all goes to plan, we will finish the year uh, with a series in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. Uh, it is uh, the world in which we live is one where it is important that we understand what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live as a Christian in difficult situations, whether those difficult situations are personal or whether they are organized, uh, that we learn to live what it means to be a Christian in the day in which we live. And Philippians and Daniel and the Sermon on the Mount will all come together to help us think about that as this year goes along. For now, though, we're in a five-week series that we're calling, that's called Glorifying God at Gray Road. That's not a clever title. This is the fourth time I've preached a series called Glorifying God at Gray Road, because every once in a while, we want to come back to what it is that the Lord says about the church, why we exist, and what we ought to do in order to pursue that purpose. So last week, we began by looking at Ephesians 3 and thinking about why it is that we or any local church exists, namely to glorify God, to put God and His wisdom in redemption on display, not only for the watching world, but you'll recall it echoes to the entire universe so that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places hear about what God has done in Christ and the victory He has secured. And this week we begin by begin the, the, five, the, the remaining four weeks are going to be what we do in or, as a church in order to pursue that purpose. We use four phrases to help us remember. They're out on the four-year wall, and we're actually going to read this together. Uh, so if you'll go forward to where that begins there, Ian, I would appreciate it. There we go. Let's just read it together. Gray Road Baptist Church exists to glorify God by, got to put the next one up, exalting Jesus in passionate worship, equipping, there we go, Christians for life and service, encouraging one another in meaningful fellowship, and engaging the world with the gospel. Those four phrases summarize what we do in order to pursue the purpose God has given us to glorify Him. All of them arise right out of the Bible. 
This morning, we're going to be thinking about exalting Jesus in passionate worship. We glorify God by gathering together each week to exalt Him, to put Him on display in our singing, to put Him on display in our preaching, to put Him on display in our praying, to put Him on display in our giving. All of those things, as the church does them, uniquely points to a God who is worthy of praise, whose words are authoritative, who is the one who helps the weak and uplifts the downcast, and who also is the provider of all we have materially. So, all of those things work together to glorify God. And as we turn to the Bible this morning, we're going to focus within exalting Jesus in passionate worship, we're going to focus on praise especially singing. We're going to look at what David says in Psalm 57. So let's read it together. I will read. You follow along. If you're using a pew Bible and you don't know how to navigate it, Psalm 57 is on page 477 of that Bible. This is what the Spirit says. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame Him who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves." My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, as we look to Your Word, what we know not, we pray You will teach us. What we have not, You will give us. What we are not, make us for Jesus' sake. Amen. The takeaway from this psalm is that God's people praise God no matter what their circumstances may be. God's people praise God no matter what their circumstances may be. Now, if you were to read all of the psalms, you would find over and over again that we are commanded to praise, but we don't have that kind of command here in Psalm 57. We don't have a prescription for praise. We have a description of 
praise, of David's praise. And by studying it, understanding it, the Lord can teach and grow us in our praise, all right? First of all, I want us to think about David's circumstances. David's circumstances. Now, the, the psalm, the book of Psalms is a collection of writings by different authors at different uh, periods of time in Israelite history. And as you read an individual psalm, sometimes you'll see just a brief description at the beginning, right? A psalm of David or a psalm of Asaph or of the sons of Korah or anything like that. And sometimes you get a bigger description that tells you a bit of what's going on as these words are composed. And that's what we have here in this title that in our English translation comes before verse 1. It says, To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So this is David's personal experience but it's being adapted. It's adapted for the choir. And it says, according to do not destroy. There are about three, I think there are three other psalms that have that. According to do not destroy. It's probably the name of a tune that they used in order to sing this psalm. Uh, but then he goes on to give us the setting. When he fled, when David fled from Saul in the cave. Now what does that refer to? Well, just as a reminder, back in 1 Samuel, we meet David, who's a shepherd boy, and God sends the prophet Nathan to anoint him as king. It's not a public ceremony. There's not a, you know, there's not a Facebook event that's gone out, and we're going to gather the whole nation and do this. It's a private ceremony in his backyard, and Nathan anoints him as the next king of Israel. So nobody really knows what's going on except Nathan and his family. And at the same time, following that, what's ha what happens is that David's reputation begins to grow. He's helpful within the court of Saul, who's the king at the time. Then he defeats this giant Philistine warrior named Goliath. You know that, you know that story well, my guess is. But his reputation grows to the point that a song is written about him. A song that proclaims, well, you know, Saul has conquered his thousands, but David, his ten thousands, and young women are dancing in the streets in their pretty gowns, and they're singing this, and they're praising David, this wonderful warrior. And as the song lifts up and it reaches Saul's ears, he doesn't like what he hears. He's not the kind of leader who's okay with anyone sitting second fiddle and getting more praise than him. It starts to drive him crazy to the point that his goal in life is to wipe out David, to have him killed. And so David ends up on the run, and as he is on the run, he winds up in a cave and on a couple of occasions that's written about. The first is in 1 Samuel 22 in, a, in the cave of Adullam, and the second is in 1 Samuel 24 at the cave of Engedi. Now, either one of these could be the setting of Psalm 57. I tend to lean toward 1 Samuel 24 for reasons that I won't go into because it doesn't change the meaning of the text. The point of the circumstance is, though, that David's hiding. David is on the run for his life, and he's hiding in a cave. 
And as we read this psalm, we see, as we move through it, we see David give us a picture of what his experience is, what his circumstances are. First, we see danger. Look at verse 1. Look at the end of verse 1. He calls Saul and his army a storm of destruction. Storms of destruction. Verse 4 he says, my soul is in the midst of lions. It's like he's helpless prey surrounded by lions. If you, you, you probably know this. Lions often hunt in groups so that one group will be surrounding the herd and pressuring them toward taller grass where in that taller grass, the prey has no idea that what's awaiting them there are more lions. And at any moment, they could be pounced. And as David is driven from one place to another, he feels that pressure. He feels like prey, and he doesn't know when he'll be pounced. Again, keep going in verse 4. He says, I lie down amid fiery beasts. Now, more literally, what it says is, I lie down in the midst of a consuming fire. He's been, this, this, just on Christmas Eve, as we were having our tender COVID Christmas, on Christmas Eve, we built the first fire in our fireplace in our new home. In our old home, we had a gas fireplace, and this new one, we have wood burning. And so, uh, you know, I got the fire going, and what, if, what you notice, if you wa- I love to watch fires. Do you love to watch fires? I love to watch fires. It's what I do. If we're sitting out at a campsite, I'm just looking at the fire, and the tongues of fire are coming up. And what you do is you put a nice full log on that fire, right? And what happens? As the fire consumes it, it withers up and becomes brittle. And that's what's happening to David. The fire of the danger around him is wearing him down. To where we not only see danger, we see what we might label depression. Look at this in verse 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. I mean, his enemies are setting traps and digging pits, doing whatever it takes to corner him and conquer him and kill him. And he feels this, he felt this way. My soul was bowed down. The Hebrew word there means to be bent over and hollowed out. I don't know if you bake using canned pumpkin in the fall or if you go get the pumpkin and you and you just gut it. I mean, you just scrape it all out and then you cut it up and, and, you, and then you cook it. But that process of scraping out all the insides of the pumpkin, that's how David feels. That's what's happening to him. He feels hollowed out, empty by what is going on. These are David's circumstances. He's in danger. His soul is bowed down. There's circumstances you could probably relate to. Oh, now there's no king green with envy and red-faced in anger who's formed a special task force to come kill you that's out for your blood. You're not hiding in a cave under the threat of death. But many of you know pressure from those who are enemies of the gospel. You don't just know that the world hates you because you follow Jesus. You have experienced that exile, that hatred. 
And in our day, it's not just out there. It's not just something we talk about our missions partners facing in other places in the world. It's in your job. It's in your life. It's in your living room. It's in your family. It's with your friends. The pressure is to cave in and to adopt the world's ideals, to silence your talk of biblical truth. As it were, the the pressure is to hollow out Christianity so that it's only a shell of itself, something that if you twist and contort it enough, more people will be on board with it. If you hollow out all the things that are hard and you just say, just love one another. But I don't mean love one another the Bible, the way the Bible says to love one another. I just mean, you know, just blanket acceptance. Sure, we will have to hollow out what the Bible says is the core definition of what it means to be a human being, to be male or female, to be married. Sure, we'll have to, we'll, we'll have to hollow out the Bible's firm preservation of life and give people the opportunity to advance the culture of death at their own whim. But love... You know that pressure, don't you? You hear that all the time, certainly. I hear it all the time. And I don't get out much. I don't go to a workplace full of unbelievers. You do. You know that this is how people think, that the ultimate form of love is to give human autonomy in all things. And so the pressure is to cave, to silence your talk of biblical truth and morality and judgment and and biblical justice and salvation, or else you will face ostracism, or else you will face unemployment, or possibly worse things around the corner. But even beyond that simple pressure, we all know the way of suffering. We all know the way of affliction. We all know the way of grief in all of life. We know what it means to be bowed down and to be hollowed out by what's going on in your world. We know what it means to absolutely be gutted by the pains of life. And you see, in those times, the hardest moments of life can become like a 3D IMAX screen where you can't see anything else. You can't imagine singing praise right now. Are you kidding? And so many people simply stop. They'll step back from singing. They'll press pause on praising. They'll take an exit from exaltation. They'll check out of church. You know, just until things get better, until things get right in my life, until I feel better, until my world is better. And once my world is better, then I'll come back because then I'll have a reason to sing. It's an all-too-common line. But it is precisely the opposite of what David does. David knows 
looking to his circumstances, he has no reason to praise God. He has no reason to sing praise if the circumstances are going to determine what I do. But he knows he has a reason to sing even in the most painful, difficult, life-threatening, hollowing-out circumstances because God determines David's praise. Circumstances don't determine David's praise. Please catch that because that is what's going on here. Circumstances don't determine David's praise. God determines David's praise. So that in the midst of it, I mean, just, let's just read verses 4 to 6 again and you'll just hear it right in the middle of this hard stuff. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. In the midst of these two awful verses, beautiful praise emerges. Why? Because circumstances don't dictate David's praise. The character of God does. And so we move on from David's circumstances to David's commitment, which is what we see here. David won't quit singing to God. He won't give up exalting God. He's committed. He's going to keep singing because he's motivated by something other than his circumstances. This may be a silly uh, 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 example for you, uh, so you can dismiss it right out of hand. But in the movie Elf, all right? Will Ferrell's character shows up to the dad he never knew. And his dad thinks he's a singing, you know, Christmas gram or something. So he tells him to start singing. And so, you know, uh, Will Ferrell's uh, character, I'm singing, I'm singing, I'm here with my dad and I'm singing, I'm singing. And he just won't stop because he's motivated by something other than all the odd looks that are coming to him from the people who are in the room. He's motivated by the fact that here I am with my dad. I'll sing for him. How much greater is it, though, when the pain of life crushes you, scoops out your guts, and flings them around, when pain is everywhere you look, to say, I'm singing. I'm singing. David is committed. And as I meditated on David's commitment to praise here, I found four characteristics of it, of the praise that he's committed to. First of all, it's from the heart. It's from the heart. It's from a settled heart. Look at, look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. It's firm. It's fixed. It's not moving. It's not wandering. It's not wavering. His heart is set to praise. His heart is not soft clay, that is shaped and reshaped by the circumstances of his life. His heart for praise has been shaped by God himself and fired in the kiln of God's grace and love so that it is solid. It is not going anywhere. It's from a, it's from a settled heart, a whole heart. Look at verse 8. Awake, my glory. 
When he says that, he's stirring himself up. His, when he says, my glory, he means everything that's in him, everything that he can muster up. This is the way that David always praises. If you look at other places, you see this. So, for example, Psalm 9, verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Psalm 103, verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David throws everything he is into praise. Everything he is. So much so, he says, I will awake the dawn. (laughs) You talk about excited. You talk about invigorated. He said, I'm going to sing so much, so excitedly, so full of enthusiasm that the the, the sun is going to have to get out of bed and get up. Does God enrapture our souls like that? Does God and His character and His love and His grace and His mercy, does it yank out of you from your heart things you can't sing for other people? Is your exuberance over singing happy birthday for your grandchild pale in comparison to how you sing for the Lord? It's from the heart. It's from the heart. It's also with the mouth. That seems like a silly thing to say, but it seems necessary. One of the things I've said over and over again these last few years is how thankful I am for the way that God has grown us as a singing congregation. But it always bears repeating this isn't silent praise, David isn't thinking praise thoughts. He's not at the back of the church, as it were, stoic and silent with his arms folded, waiting for the real thing to happen for the sermon. He's singing. Look at verse 7. He says, I will sing and make melody. That's actually just repeating the same idea. I will sing, I will sing a melody. He says in verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Again in verse 9, I will sing praises to you. C.S. Lewis wrote that praise is basically the inner condition of a person made audible. It reveals what we love. It reveals what we value. It, what, it, what wells up in us with such passion that it has to come out. I mean, the, the Bible teaches us that part of loving and valuing God is singing. Not that it's one option among many. Will you sing while I give? Or you sing while I teach? You sing while I go on mission trips. It's not that at all. That it's part and parcel of a necessary expression of love and praise. That's why all of those commands in the Psalms are there. To command us what is absolutely best for our soul, which is to love and value and rejoice in God our Savior. Now, your praise may not sound very melodious. Your praise may not be on pitch. Your praise may not be as well pleasing to the ear as it is when it comes from another's mouth. 
But you can rest easy. God hasn't, hasn't commanded melodious singing. He hasn't, he hasn't mandated being on pitch. He simply commanded you to sing. He's commanded me to sing. That's not what joyful noise means, by the way, is bad singing. Joyful noise actually means with great volume. Great volume. Okay? Just that's a side note. That's free. Next. So, it is, it is from the heart. It is with the mouth. It is in public. Notice where David praises. Verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. He may be in a cave, but his praise won't be hidden. He won't blush. He won't be ashamed. He'll sing as the world looks on. Later in life, once David actually becomes king, he goes and retrieves the Ark of the Covenant, that great uh, symbol of God's presence among his people. And there's a great, great celebratory parade coming into Jerusalem, bringing the Ark back. And if you remember that place in 2 Samuel, um, David is leaping and dancing and praising. And his wife is looking on with her arms crossed. How undignified for the king to do that. She wants to let him know, and she does, just how ridiculous he looks. Oh, how the world hears our praise, hears us speak and sing praise to God and must think it is ridiculous, must think it is crazy. But the thing is, is that they don't know this God. They have a caricature of Him in their minds, a God of their own making, a God they deny, a God they mock. Their eyes haven't been opened as ours have. Their hearts haven't been renewed as ours have. Their sin hasn't been forgiven as ours has. They need the resounding echo of praise from the church because they need to know the God of love and justice and mercy and wrath and compassion and grace. They need to hear that He's great. They need to hear that He's good. They need to hear that He's worth singing to, that He's worth living for, that He's worth dying for. And if you keep your praise private, dear Christian, you condemn the world to ignorance of the one true God. It's from the heart. It's with the mouth. It's in public and it's in faith. Faith. Only faith can produce that kind of thing. Only faith produces singing like that, praise like that, unashamed like that. And here in Psalm 57, David sees his God in the midst of his circumstances through eyes of faith. In verse 1, God is merciful. He knows to go to God for mercy. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. David may be in a cave, but he knows that the one truly safe place in the universe is with the Lord under the shadow of his wings. God is most high. Verse 2, I cry out to God most high. There is none higher. There is no higher power. There is no greater authority. The king of Israel who commands troops to hunt David is no match for the king of the universe who loves David.
Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you believe it? The king and the authority that may hunt you down is no match for the God who has loved you and raised you up. God most high. And the third thing David knows is God keeps his promises. The very next phrase in verse 2. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. You know that day in Jesse's backyard when David was anointed as king was probably a great day. They may have had a cake or something afterwards. I don't know. But this day, this day in the cave, this is not a great day. It's a day when some people might wonder if God knows what he's doing. Because here's David, the supposed king, on the run in a cave fighting for his life. But David doesn't doubt God. He's convinced that God fulfills his purpose for me. And he goes on in verse 3. Look what he says in verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you know what David knew? That on that day that Nathan anointed his head with oil and declared him to be the next king of Israel, and as he came speaking God's will and God's way and God's word for his life, he knew that nothing could stop that. He could see the end. Not because he was a fortune teller. He could see what God said about the end. He could see God's promise for the future which kept him steady in the present. Kept him praising in the present. God will keep his promise. All of this suffering, David knows, is going to lead to glory. When what God says is true now, privately and in opposition, will be made public for the whole nation to see. And as he waits, he says, he clings, he knows that God will send out steadfast love and faithfulness. He clings to God's steadfast love, meaning his covenant loyalty, his grace. And he clings to God's faithfulness, his firmness, his constancy. He says it again in in verse 10, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Oh, dear friend, dear Christian, how we need this kind of faith today to cling to God's steadfast love, His loyalty, seen not in the promise to David to make him king, but the promise to David for a king, and the promise of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for us to save us, to make us God's own children. How we need to cling to that, that that is where we belong, that we are not citizens of this world, we are not citizens of a party, we are not citizens of an age, we are citizens of heaven, and God has made us His children through Jesus Christ. So that no matter what else shifts and wavers, that will not. And we need to cling to his faithfulness in Jesus. Because you see, because of what he has done in Jesus Christ for us, because Jesus was forsaken on the cross, we will never be left. 
We will never be forsaken. It may seem the whole world has left us behind. It may seem that our so-called Christian nation has been flushed down the toilet, but do you know who hasn't gone anywhere? The Lord Jesus Christ. And too many of us think that if one goes, it all goes. Oh, how little faith we have. How small is our God. Dear friend, if you don't know the steadfast love and faithfulness of God in your life, you can know it if you will come to Jesus Christ. He lived the absolute perfection of what humanity is meant to be. He lived in absolute righteousness, absolute obedience to God and His law. And He told us His kingdom is not of this world, but He died, He came and He inaugurated a kingdom, and He died and He rose again to pay for the sons of the kingdom, and He sent His Spirit to empower His kingdom. And one day, that which has been promised, do you remember where you came? To, some people can remember exactly where they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe the, the bed where they kneeled or the, the auditorium where they, where, where they came to faith, where they were awakened, whatever it is. Uh, but whatever it was, whether you can remember it or not, what was promised to you in that little secret place in that little private place, in Jesse's backyard, will one day be fully, publicly known worldwide. The promise given to us that we cling to in the midst of opposition will be fulfilled. Not only do we cling to His steadfast love and His faithfulness, we have to keep the end in mind. We have to remember where our hope is. Because when we shift our hope, everything gets off, off the rails. How we live gets off the rails. How we respond to news goes off the rails. How we think about one another goes off the rails. Our hope has to be in the Lord Jesus Christ to that moment when Jesus Christ is exalted above every name and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ world without end. That's what has to keep you going. That's what has to keep me going. That's the only thing that will keep us praising. Because otherwise we'll walk in here and we will have read something. We will have seen something. We will have thought something. We will have interacted with something. We will have not turned it off that news channel for 24 hours a day the last six days. And we expect that we're going to come in here with any kind of thought other than the circumstances of the world are going to determine how I praise today. When we see our God as merciful and as the God most high over whom no power can exert influence. When we see Him as the God who fulfills His promises, there will not be a circumstance that can shake our commitment to praise Him. When we see God with eyes of faith, there will not be a circumstance that will end, set aside our commitment to praise Him. 
Think about the circumstances of David's commitment and, and, his, and his, the commitment itself. And evaluate your own praise. I just want to ask you a few questions just to evaluate. Is your praise from the heart? Is it a settled matter that you will praise the Lord? Or do circumstances determine whether you'll praise? Is your, whole, is your whole heart devoted to praise when you praise? Are you all in when you sing? Is your praise with the mouth? Do you sing? Do you verbalize? Is your praise public? When people sit near you who you don't know, do you stop singing all of a sudden? Because you're, more, you're too self-conscious about yourself and not conscious enough about the God to whom you sing. Is your praise in faith? Do you sing, you know, there is a thing, I love music. I love, all, I love so many different kinds of music, and I, can, and I sing along to all kinds of music, such that many of the conversations I have with Susan are almost exclusively lyrics sometimes. And I sing music because it's beautiful, but we don't sing praise because the music's beautiful. Though it should be. Because God deserves beauty. Do you just sing because it's what you're supposed to do? Do you sing because you don't want others to see you not singing? Do you sing with your lips but not really with your heart? Do you believe that what you're singing? Do you, do you sing as one who knows God's love and faithfulness? As one who trusts His purposes? Is your praise in faith? Our praise is so important. This, pray, this psalm teaches us that God's people praise God no matter what their circumstances may be. And we who live on this side of the cross of Jesus praise in the same way we exist to glorify God by exalting Jesus. Exalting Jesus. When we say that God will, when David says that God will send his steadfast love and faithfulness, the fulfillment of that was in Jesus Christ. When we exalt the steadfast love, and if we were to say that, God will send His steadfast love and faithfulness, not only do we know it now, we will know it in full one day, unhindered. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace. When He takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day, that will be. Now we're going to pray, and once we pray, we're going to sing the doxology again. So we'll pray, once we finish praying, you stand, and then we'll sing the doxology, and that will be the close of our service. Let's pray. Oh God, how worthy you are of every breath, every word, every moment, our soul, our life, our all. God, we pray you would enrapture our hearts and souls with the wonder of Jesus Christ and his cross and the salvation we have in him. We pray, God, that circumstances in our lives would not dictate whether we praise you or even how we praise you, or how exuberantly we praise you or how loudly we sing, but that, that our commitment to you would be based on who you are and what you have done for us. 
our praise would be based on who you are and what you've done for us, that it would be from the heart, with the mouth, unashamedly in public, and rooted in faith. Would you make us a church that exalts you in passionate worship more and more, week by week? We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.